right, is Kanye West anti-Semitic? I don't know, we'll discuss. Kidding, I know, he's definitely anti-Semitic. That's not the question. The question is, is this spreading to others? And how much damage has it done? We're gonna bring in Alad Nehorai here. He's a writer specializing in extremism and anti-Semitism. Alad, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, no problem. So I saw a great Twitter thread that you had about this. In case people don't remember and they've been living under a rock, I'm gonna show Kanye one of Kanye's clips and then we'll have you react, okay? It's biting my tongue on my political opinion because I thought it would be better for my children. And now you look up and my kids are going to a school that teaches black kids a complicated Kwanzaa. I prefer my kids knew Hanukkah than Kwanzaa. At least it will come with some financial engineering. Okay, a lot that doesn't seem subtle. Um, so right wing will debate anything, but is that anti-Semitic? Yes. Um, and I think it's interesting because I've noticed that even people who are sympathetic and understand that it's anti-Semitic can have difficulty understanding exactly in what way. What does he mean by financial engineering? Does it just mean they're good with money? Um, that alone is already anti-Semitic. But what we're really talking about is someone who's convinced that Jews are in control of the economy, in control of the media, you know, classic, overt, full on anti-Semitism. So I think it's really important that we distinguish between him saying something that's like semi-philo-Semitic and anti-Semitic versus full on white nationalist, you know, Nazi-esque version of anti-Semitism, which is what we're hearing here. Yeah, and so we wanna get into the distinction between him and Larry Logan in a second, we're gonna bring Trump into it because he weighed in. But first about that clip, did Tucker run that whole clip on his show? No, he cut it um, and he very clearly cut it on purpose because there's another uh, scene where that was aired where uh, it was very subtle. At the time I called it out and I remember very few people kind of responding to it except for the kind of people that were already tuned into this kind of thing where he was talking about Kushner and he was saying and then he kind of switched his wording very subtly which is a very common uh, anti-Semitic trope where he went from saying, talking about Kushner specifically to suddenly saying they. And he specifically said, they only care about money. Um, Now, if you were only watching uh, that part of the interview, it's understandable why you might be confused and think it's not anti-Semitic. He's just talking about the Kushners. I definitely agree that the Kushners are doing things just for the money. But the problem is that in anti-Semitic rhetoric, you very often will take kind of a one one Jew as an example, and then apply it to Jews as a whole, which is exactly what happened. And what Tucker Carlson did, which was a classic Tucker Carlson, he's been doing this for years, this isn't new. He cut out the parts that were that would get him in trouble, that were overtly anti-Semitic. And he kept, and he actually kept, he went out of his way to keep the part that was subtly anti-Semitic. This is what Tucker Carlson has been doing for most of his career. He's been doing it more and more overtly for years. And this was kind of the first time where we got to see a little bit behind uh, behind the scenes in the way that he works, where he knows what he's doing. He knows it's anti-Semitic, but it, and he's making sure to keep anti-Semitism while also pretending like it's not there. So guys, this is actually really important. And actually, we're gonna go to our uh, second video here uh, because it's actually what Alana is describing there. The reason I'm gonna run this video for you guys is one, you get the sense of what a lot was talking about, but two, listen carefully what what Tucker Carlson says in the middle 
And I'm gonna tell you the chronology of events that is so relevant here. Listen to Tucker here, watch. All of these things that Jared, you know, somehow doesn't get enough credit for with his work. And what is it, his work in Israel or his work in Palestine? What, what is this? You know where he made these peace treaties? Where was that? Do you know the facts on this right here? So I'm like. I, well, I think that was treating Israel and, and some of the Arab nations. I just think it was to make money. I don't know, is that, is that too heavy handed to put on this platform? No, that's, that's your opinion. We're not in the censorship business. Okay, thank you. And I just think that that's what they're about is making money. I don't think that they have the ability to make anything on their own. I think they were born into money. He said, we're not in the censorship business. We'll run what you say. But they took out the part about the financial engineering related to Hanukkah. So apparently they are in that business. And but they left in the other potentially anti-Semitic parts, but that were more dog whistles. And a lot, I actually got that from your Twitter thread. That was the first time I was like, yes, that's right, right? And then if you remember a lot, Kanye did not get in trouble for the Tucker Carlson interview. He got in trouble yeah. after the Tucker Carlson interview, right? And so that chronology matters a lot because Tucker already knew he was anti-Semitic. And I remember the intro to that segment too. He's like, you know, oh, or he said later, oh, they called Kanye anti-Semitic, but we didn't see anything like that when we interviewed him. And he left that part out. Doesn't that just tell you everything you need to know about Tucker Carlson? Everything. Yeah. I mean, in some bizarre, weird way, I'm almost not really, but in a way, thankful that Kanye is kind of out of control because what ended up happening was. Tucker Carlson thought he could control Kanye. And what ended up happening was that Kanye didn't let him. The next day, he started posting on Instagram, really anti-Semitic things. Then he posted on Twitter after he got blocked on Instagram. And he just would not hide that he was very clearly, overtly, hatefully anti-Semitic. And this was kind of one of those times where Tucker Carlson's tricks didn't really work in that sense. And Unfortunately, his audience is probably not gonna see that side of things, but at least we can. Yeah, there's no question. He knew for a fact before the news story broke that Kanye West was deeply anti-Semitic and he buried it. He did not show it to his audience. He kept a subtle anti-Semitism in to stoke the fires, but took out the harsh one. So it was a dog whistle and not a foghorn. So that's that's classic Tucker Carlson. So now, yeah. uh, this is, but what I'm worried about a lot is that this is not just Kanye. Now it's spreading. You know, Jason Whitlock, another right wing African American host, jumped in. You look at the comment section on these videos, they're all like, Kanye's right, he's a hero, etc. Then you had Trump coming in, we'll get to Trump in a second. Then Larry Logan went over the top, and even Newsmax had to say, oh, no, we're not having Larry Logan on, even Newsmax. But then that made me think, wait, so she mentioned blood libel about drinking the blood of. And then this is the, one of the oldest anti-Semitic tropes. It's gotten literally millions of people killed. The idea that, that Jews drink the blood of Christian children, right? And that is now being repurposed in QAnon, saying the global elites drink the blood of children, right? So Larry Logan says something to that effect on Newsmax, and they said, okay, she's banned, right? But Kanye West is talking about the Jewish media mafia and how the Jews control all the media, etc. Why is he not banned? He's on Piers Morgan, he's he's on all parts of the media. Why is Kanye not being banned? Yeah, like why the difference? Like why 
Oh, okay, Lara Logan said the blood libel, so okay, that's a bridge too far. But saying the Jews run all the media is not a bridge too far? Right, I mean, I think what's very obvious here is that the people who are pushing anti-Semitism on the right, and let's be clear, that is what they're doing. It's not subtle, it's not that they're confused, especially when we're talking about someone like Tucker Carlson, if we're talking about the right wing media, they know what's going on, they know the tropes, they know what they're getting involved in. And the truth is that what they're doing is what they've done. This is not unique to the Jewish people. What is slightly unique is that anti-Semitism until recently felt like something that was bipartisan, that people were against it on a bipartisan level. Now we're seeing whether it's racism, homophobia, transphobia, we're seeing not just a move to hateful speech, we're seeing a move from coded to overt. And really what this is about is just about the right wing media right now essentially deciding how far is too far. And every single day that line keeps getting crossed a little bit more. And so the question is, is someone powerful enough or vocal enough or do they have enough power? Do they have enough of an audience? where they can get away with that as well. That's a big part of this as well. Tucker Carlson has a massive audience. And that's why honestly, again, I wanna emphasize this has been happening for years, this is not new. With just a, you know, just a year ago or even less than that, he released a documentary about George Soros saying that he was out to destroy Western civilization. This is something that is spread daily, daily in the right wing media and among Republican politicians, where you have this classic trope of a, um, a puppet master who's controlling everything behind the scenes, a rich Jew, that again, you then apply to all of Jews afterwards. This was the same exact cons- conspiracy theory that led to the Pittsburgh massacre, the Tree, Tree of Life synagogue massacre. Um, there was a conspiracy that George Soros was paying for a immigrant caravan to come into the United States. Uh, Donald Trump spread this conspiracy, Tucker Carlson spread this conspiracy, uh, conspiracy theory. And eventually a shooter came into a Jewish synagogue that was pro-immigrant and killed more Jews than have ever been killed on American soil in one massacre. This is the same exact conspiracy that is now being spread massively on the right wing media. So again, it's not new, it's just continuing to evolve so that so that people become more and more accepting of the rhetoric. But it's always been there. Yeah, a lot, it's of course also the same conspiracy theory that led to the Holocaust. That Jewish puppet masters, they control the banks, the media, and they drink the blood of children. Same exact propaganda, and and it led to that result. And if you think, oh, that's hyperbolic, it is not hyperbolic. That's literally what happened. That's what happened in Germany, and right now they're literally doing that here. Not the killing yet, except for the Tree of Life synagogue and another synagogue shooting in Southern California, and and a lot. If you ask a random Republican, hey, what what's the religion of Robert Mercer or Charles Koch? I don't know. If you ask them, what's the religion of George Soros? Jewish, Jew, Jews, right? They all know. We interviewed somebody at TYT that was at a Trump rally. He had a giant, it's the biggest back tattoo I've ever seen. It was George Soros as puppet master. They've been training these guys to believe that the Jews are the problem the whole time. So which brings me to Trump. So he Trump put out a statement saying that, you know, implying that it, I don't want to read the whole thing, it's too long, but 
that hey, we, we, after all we have done for Israel, the Jews are not grateful, right? No, 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 they're Jewish Americans, they're Americans, right? And no, they don't have to be grateful to you and, and etc. But he's done this a thousand times. He ran his entire 2016 campaign on against the global elites, right? So for a lot of that gets to my question. For a lot of us, if you don't know the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, etc., you hear global elites and you think, well, yeah, I guess there's rich folks in the world and they're across the world. Okay, yeah, there's global elites, but they don't mean global elites. And for the people who are anti-Semitic, when they hear global elites, they know exactly what people are referring to, right? So that's the interesting disconnect there, where they ironically have plausible deniability with people who are not anti-Semitic. Because we don't understand the code words, but for the anti-Semites, they're like, "Oh, I know what you're talking about." So, and and a lot. How is this confusing? After he said, the Charlottesville, you know, literal Nazi march, where they chanted, "The Jews will not replace us," and he said, "There's very good people on both sides." So, it's to your point about, will there be a Republican leader that? This is no, 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 this is crazy. Let's not do this. It appears we have a Republican leader doing the exact opposite. And how troubling is that? It's deeply troubling. I mean, the fact is, like, as much as I want to say, oh, yes, this has been happening for years, the truth is that it's the nature of it has evolved. The nature of it has become more overt. And that to me is extremely worrisome. And it's worrisome. Not just to me, to experts in extremism, to experts in anti-Semitism, because it means more than just um, than just what's happening to Jews. Of course, I want I care very much about protecting Jews in this moment, but we have to understand that anti-Semitism is not just hate. Uh, it's also a way of understanding the world. That's why we tend to refer to them as conspiracy theories. And so, what ends up happening is when a society starts to overtly fall into anti-Semitism as opposed to simply in a coded dog whistly way as we've been used to now for a number of years. What we're now experiencing is a transition into more overt fascism. Because really anti-Semitism is the language of fascism in many ways. It's it's the way that you justify taking complete control of a government. It's the way you justify um, Stopping, stopping immigration. It's the way you justify um, a lot of the uh, white nationalist rhetoric that we're seeing in America, the, the very distinctly white uh, nationalist form of fascism that we've seen in, in the United States. So as fascism becomes more overt in the United States, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism will be more overt and vice versa. And that means that not just Jews are under threat, but every minority, every non-white Christian male is under, is, uh, is in danger because we're really united in this experience because anti-Semitism is kind of this thread that helps connect all of these different forms of bigotry and turn them into a narrative of conspiratorial control that Jews have in the United States. Thus explaining why, for example, immigration is such a problem or in their minds. And why why are black people gaining power in the United States? It can't be that black people who in their minds are, um, you know, not superior to white people uh, can somehow be gaining power. It doesn't make sense to someone who is racist. So the way that you explain that is by saying there's a malignant force, all powerful that is controlling things behind the scenes. And so as you explain it in that way, then number one, 
your narrative starts to build cohesion. It starts to fall together among different kinds of groups. It also then justifies anything you do in response. And that's really when it gets scary because now the government or the people that wanna be in charge of the government are essentially saying they will do whatever they can to stop this deep dark evil that they see. And and that's that can go very far as we all know. No, we're in super dark times. Uh, and I've never been this concerned, never, ever uh, about America. And they've they've got a third of the country believing in this in these insane, insane theories. And you're absolutely right. The minute it becomes overt, watch out. That means they're they're at the doorstep, uh, and they're now willing to say it out loud. Uh, and and anti-Semitism is kind of like the last part of the puzzle. So I a lot I couldn't agree with you more. It's look, it's imperative that we protect our Jewish brothers and sisters. But this isn't just about Jewish folks. Once they're willing to say that, they're willing to say and do anything. It's the last step. So I don't know if Democrats and media in this country have any idea what's going on. I mean, the house is on fire. And they're not acting like it at all. Uh, so I hope to God that you and I are wrong, but I don't think we are. Uh, very dangerous times in America. Elad uh, Nahorai, he writes about uh, extremism and anti Semitism. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, can Republicans and Democrats work together in America? I know what you're thinking. Hell no. Uh, but it turns out, eh. A little bit of hell yes in West Virginia of all places. Now you're thinking, wait, what kind of Democrats and Republicans are they? Well, let's find out, okay? So Joe Solomon's a Democrat. He's running for West Virginia City Council. He's also co-director of SOAR West Virginia. That's Solutions-Oriented Addiction Response. And Dr. Frank Annie is the Republican council candidate for Ward 13. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. No problem. Yeah, thanks, sir. So Joe, let me start with you. Um, you guys are part of a bipartisan group. What is that group, and how in the world do you guys get to get along? Yeah, it's, we not only have uh, Dr. Frank Annie, a Republican, we have a bunch of independents and, uh, and and a bunch of Democrats. We're a nine-candidate cross-partisan uh, slate that's running for city council seats in Charleston, West Virginia. And we get along because the pain's gotten too great in Charleston, West Virginia. We've become the overdose capital since 2018 and the home to the most concerning HIV outbreak, according to the CDC. That's what they told us last year. So the pain's just gotten too great. And um, so we've banded together to try to get, get at that pain. Okay, so I'm obviously very curious about what it means to band together. So let me go to Frank here. Frank, you're a Republican, but yet you're canvassing with Joe. So tell me what your vision for the Republican Party is that lines up with anything on, on, on the other side. Well, I describe myself as a liberal Republican. I think that we need to have solutions. And as Joe said, the pain here has gotten too great. And Ironically, when we go in Canvas, I encounter a lot of Republicans that love the bipartisanship. They're tired of the name calling, they're tired of the nonsense. And I, I hope to inspire a part of the Republican Party, the 20% that are like-minded, that are really wanting to have effective change, have solutions to problems, instead of just 
the same old culture war stuff that really doesn't serve anybody and hurts local county and states. I mean, yeah. So Frank, uh, when you guys say the the pain has gotten too much, I'm curious what you think the pain is. Like, what is the pain, and more importantly, who's causing it? Because I think that that's a huge issue where Americans diverge, uh, and 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 then you guys have converged. So I'm trying to figure it out as to how you're thinking about it. Well, I I work in a hospital. Um, I, I'm an academic by training. Um, I primarily got my start doing cardiovascular research, seeing this day in and day out in a hospital setting, seeing the overdoses, seeing us putting artificial heart valves in 25 and 30 year olds, and and seeing the CDC come into Charleston, seeing them have policy recommendations to have effective harm reduction, and seeing our local leaders simply ignore them. And that report was was printed a year ago and we've launched nothing. We are still at a crisis level for HIV, for hepatitis C, for hepatitis A, for infective enteritis, for bacteremia. And this this is extended into an economic loss that's estimated at $1.7 billion per year by a report from the West Virginia Budget Policy in 2019. I mean, the pain has gotten to a point that is economic, it is moral, and to be blunt, it is a collective scar against across all of our souls. I mean, it's something that when I met Joe about two years ago, and then he sent a call out for to run, it's the only move I had left. I mean, it was a obligation to try and do some good or raise some public awareness for public health here. So Joe, who's causing the pain? Um, I think the elites of our city. Uh, when uh, I had a house party recently, a grassroots house party, and a neighbor who worked in City Hall for 20, 30 years said, you know, I once asked a city councilor, um, what is that they do? And the city councilor answered, we take care of business. Mm-hmm. We take care of business. Our city council is largely chock full of lawyers, lobbyists, and landlords. And we're running as public health champions, as teachers, as social workers, as public defenders. Um, I think our city has gotten uh, to, to this, uh, mount, uh, this mountain, this, this peak of pain um, uh, because we've been taking care of business. We've been uh, driving the kinds of, of policies um, and sometimes just driving uh, sheer apathy so that the people that are comfortable can stay comfortable and the people that are closest to the bottom, closest to the cliff can sometimes get pushed over. Frank, um, is is that right? Is it the corruption that's the main issue? I would say so. I, I would agree with everything that Joe just said. I mean, we cannot have a even meaningful conversation about public health in Charleston. Um, it, it is the services, city council seems to be servicing either developers or they have simply just ignored this issue completely. Um, I, I don't know how any other way to put it. Um, they have, I mean, I, I try to understand the logic behind their decisions about how the CDC can have a report, how local hospitals and institutions can say, we're hurting right now. You're causing $200,000 a week of pain through our institution, but yet it falls on deaf ears. So I have begun to understand what brings you guys together. And so West Virginia can't wait, it's got Democrats, Republicans, independents, right? That's but right, but there's right. got to be a difference, right? So Frank, what 
It, look, part of what makes you a Republican is that you don't like corruption. And to be fair to Republican voters, and I'm not known for being fair to Republicans, um, <laughs> but but to be yes, fair sir. to Republican voters, they hate corruption, right? So <laughs> okay, that makes you a Republican, not a Republican yeah. politician, but a Republican voter. Um, but what else makes you a Republican? Well, I think that you can. I mean, it's interesting to me that we are using the government here to block CDC recommended guidelines. Um, you know, me and Joe had talked. We we always have this theme when we go out and canvas that uh, that that Charleston City Council has set a fire in Charleston and is causing more taxpayer money to be thrown down. Uh, you know, a well with this, with all the, the extra services. We've expanded government here by not treating public health the way it should be. And we are causing taxpayers tons of money. We are causing unnecessary deaths. There's a moral argument, there's a uh, economic argument there. And frankly, that is, if that's a theoretical premise of, you know, why I see this from a conservative point of view. If we really wanna get back to, uh, you know, a Republican viewpoint of this, we should accept all the CDC guidelines. We should open harm reduction. We should uh, decrease the amount of healthcare dollars spent in the city. We should uh, shelter the homeless. We should do all these things to reduce government spending. But instead we're not, we're using government to expand and detract from the ability of nonprofits and other institutions to save money and save lives. So Joe, uh how are you going to convince people of West Virginia to vote for a bipartisan slate in a sense? When West Virginia is a very red state, they, they, you know, aren't they going to say, oh, wait a minute, uh, I want tax cuts for the rich. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I don't, that's what I hear on cable news that West Virginians are conservative and so they love all the Republican policies of tax cuts for the rich and deregulation and pollution and, and more climate change. So how do you, if that's one, is that true? And two, how do you convince them to vote for a bipartisan slate? Jenk, I reckon you you know that that's not true. Uh, um, those are some heavy stereotypes. Um, uh, we don't approach it from a, a left to right. We approach it from an up down. And when we go to the door, uh, when we go to the door together, here's what happens. You have Dr. Frank Annie, uh, you know, on on my left, and I'm on his right, and we knock on the door together, and folks answer the door, and we say, you know, hi. Uh, I'm so and so. I'm so and so. And then we say, "Do you want to? Uh, do you want to know what's kind of interesting here?" Dr. Frank Annie's a Republican, and I'm a Democrat, and we're running together. And folks, you know, their response—they light up. Folks who, you know, might be watching a Netflix show, they're like, "What? What? It's like a magic trick. It's this wild and wonderful magic trick." And and then they tell us that they haven't seen a Democrat and a Republican running together for. 30, 40, 50 more years, maybe never. Um, and so there's this real appreciation for folks that are that have taken their analysis and found common ground that says this isn't about uh, one party or another. This is about folks with power and those without. Um, and this is about banding together so that the folks without power can get a fair shake. And I, I, I the wild thing is, is that 99% of the doors we knock on folks have been incredibly receptive to that message. That's interesting. So, Frank, let me come back to you because mm-hmm. um, that look the message of it's not left versus right or Republican versus Democrat; it's top versus bottom. That's actually 
will resonate. It'll resonate in West Virginia, it'll resonate everywhere, and most especially in West Virginia, where a lot of people have taken their abuse from the elites, etc. And they know it, and they have the popular streak, etc. in them. And then I, and that's why I was joking around about the cable news pundits pretending that West Virginians really want to stick up for the rich. I mean, it's absurd, it's absurd. Of course. And they say it with a straight face, right? Okay, but what happens though when Republicans go, yeah, I hear you, but you have to kiss Donald Trump's ass. And if you don't, I'm out. I don't care. I don't care about anything else. Oh, that's a lovely story about how you guys are got together and you're trying to stick up for the average guy in West Virginia. I don't care. Kiss Donald Trump's ass. What happens then? Actually, with those houses, we actually tend to have the best luck um, because we approach them by showing empathy um, and listening to them. You know, if you're a pure Trump voter, I mean, we try to have empathy and talk to them and explain our positions in a calm, rational way. And I think that's the big thing where, and I've had to explain to a few people in the Democratic Party about this is the reason they're Trump voters is they feel lost and they felt that they had a legitimate grievance that was not listened to them, that weren't listened to. So ironically, me and Joe have encountered, I think three or four Trump households flying the flag out front. We both have landed yard signs in their front yard and they said, thank you and shook our hands. They just won't listen to. And I, I really think that, you know, it takes a long time. I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. That was probably an hour long conversation with these individuals. But when we can deconstruct it, sit on their front porch and lay out how we see things. Yeah, they disagree with us on things. They really do. But we show them that there is a way that we can work together to make their lives better, make the city better. And maybe their kids can stay around here and enjoy their their parents. Yeah. All right. So, look, the real you nailed it. Just to be clear, right? Because the right wing voters that I I've said terrible things about, and I and and I'll stick with it to the end of time. Okay. I sometimes I call them zombies. I can call them all sorts of different names. But what I also add in is. They were right about the original issue, right? The original issue is they feel like they're getting screwed by the people up top, right? And that they're being lied to and and everybody's telling them on television, oh, everything's great, everything's great. No, 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 those are honorable gentlemen and there's no corruption. They're right about that, they're right about the actual problem. It's just then they went off the deep end and they're like, oh, okay, since that isn't true, I think it's people drinking the blood of children. You're like, what? Where did that come from? And it came from, you know, the hateful propagandists who saw the pain of people and saw it as an opportunity, right? And so, Joe, last thing here, West Virginia can't wait. Have you has it one seat so far? Because uh, this is not the first election cycle, or or not yet. Uh, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but uh, the West Virginia can't wait in just the past few years have run over a hundred candidates across the state and a fleet of them are now in the in the state house and now we're running folks across municipalities across West Virginia and Charleston the capital city uh, no surprise we're acting as a kind of model for how we can run similar slates uh, across other cities uh, in the state perhaps beyond um, and I just think it's remarkable that it's also this political uprising in the nation's overdose capital. You know, we're, we've been mobilized by, by just the tremendous amount of 
pain and preventable, you know, GoFundMe funerals, you know, that we're just done chipping into um, because it's just deadened our souls. There's just so much tragedy here. And we're running not just uh, to, to become, uh, to, to, to shake that mantle, but to actually get at the pain of our city. And that, that means that we can, you know, when we're running for a living wage for our city, that's an overdose zero wage. When we're running to decriminalize cannabis, that's harm reduction. When we're running to invest in kids and seniors, that's also getting at the roots of our pain. When we're when we say we need a, a police review board so we can have a more accountable uh, uh, po- police department, that's also getting at the pain of our city. So it's really opened a, a, a pathway where we can have much larger, more expansive conversations for uh, for shaking things up in Charleston. All right, uh, Joe Solomon, Democrat, Dr. Frank Annie, the Republican, they're running together in West Virginia. Uh, and they have correctly analyzed the, uh, the problem and they're trying to fix it together. And so that is a wonderful thing to see. Uh, West Virginia can't wait as a group. I can't wait for you guys to win. Uh, so thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Shank. Thanks, Dan Turks.